0: Yeah, I, uh, I guess my friends didn't know me as well as they thought. Just what you've been waiting for movies, TV, music, and more. Follow, subscribe, stay up to date. Episodes drop every other Monday. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed, or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, we have a new segment to the podcast called I Just Don't Get It, where I discuss a movie that seems to be widely acclaimed that I just don't get. I think we're starting off with a bang. Napoleon Dynamite from 2004. Ah yes, I remember my friends telling me enthusiastically how funny the film was, and how much I would love it. I just had to see it. Yeah, I I guess my friends didn't know me as well as they thought. I will admit, the opening title sequence was interesting. This had promise. I even overlooked the independent film trope of using an acoustic song with a whiny lead singer. It would only be worse if it was Hey There Delilah. But almost immediately after that, I regretted the next 90 minutes. Nary a laugh to be found. So, Napoleon Dynamite is socially awkward. He has a peculiar way of speaking. Kinda like this. Hair like Gabe Kaplan. Nothing is appealing about his personality. In fact, when he gets hurt on the bike jump, there was a little part of me that cheered. He lives with his grandmother and older brother Kip, who spends most of his time talking with his online girlfriend. They have a llama named Tina, and that's about as interesting as that gets. The only people that can tolerate Napoleon is Pedro, a transfer student who doesn't know any better, and Deb, another awkward character with a side ponytail. Now, I knew I had to slog through the movie because everyone kept saying, wait until you see the dance. During the school elections, Napoleon does a spontaneous dance to canned heat, and while watching, I could only think, I hope this movie disappears like the career of Jamiroquai. I can't deny for a certain subsection of society, it made a cultural impact. The amount of people walking around saying, gosh, after you ask them a pretty standard question, you'd see the vote for Pedro t-shirts, and it was undeniably successful made for $400,000, and grossed $46 million. That's impressive. But I suppose I was about five years removed from being the target audience of this film. So what were your thoughts on Napoleon Dynamite? What am I missing? Let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat, and tell me some of the movies you just don't get. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. 1 star is Skip It, 2 stars Watch at Your Own Risk, 3 stars Standard Fair, 4 stars Worth Checking Out, and 5 stars Must See. Now if I give a title 5 stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be reviewing Dead Poet Society from 1989. It was directed by Peter Weir, who helmed romantic comedy The Year of Living Dangerously, crime thriller Witness, the eco-drama The Mosquito Coast, rom-com Green Card, and fictional reality film The Truman Show. He's been nominated for six Academy Awards for writing, directing, and producing. The screenplay was written by Tom Schulman, who scribed family comedy Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, comedies What About Bob, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, which he also directed, and Welcome to Mooseport. He also served on the board of directors for the WGA West. It stars Robin Williams as English professor John Keating. The Juilliard-trained actor studied under John Hausman and was classmates with Superman, Christopher Reeve. He made a name for himself on the stand-up circuit, which led to starring in Mork and Mindy, based on his comedic material. But it would be his dramatic turn as therapist Dr. Sean McGuire in Good Will Hunting that earned him an Oscar for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. His eager students are portrayed by Ethan Hawke, Robert Sean Leonard, Josh Charles, and Gail Hansen. This is something to look out for. When the students go through the annual of John Keating, the image is, in fact, Robin Williams' senior picture from Redwood High School. So let's jump into it. It's a new semester at Welton Academy, the best preparatory school in Vermont, where the majority of students go on to Ivy League colleges. It's founded upon the principles of tradition, honor, discipline, and excellence. Headmaster Dr. Gail Nolan announces that Mr. Porteus, of the English department, retired last term, and his replacement, Mr. John Keating, is introduced. He was an honors graduate from Welton, and was last teaching at Chester School in London. The students feel the burden to maintain their family's reputation and live up to their expectations. Neil Perry is dominated by a strict father, pushed into the medical field to become a doctor. He forces his son to drop out as assistant editor of the school annual, so he can focus on academics over extracurricular activities. His roommate, Todd Anderson, has transferred from Ballincrest to follow in the footsteps of his brother, who was valedictorian and National Merit Scholar. His family name is well known, and he has the pressure to uphold their status. On the first day of classes, the teachers are dry and straightforward, buy the books, but Mr. Keating has a different approach an unconventional method. He brings the students out of the classroom, engages with them, playfully teases them. He illustrates his philosophy of life through poetry and encourages his students to think differently, captures their imagination, inspires them. When Mr. Keating asks the students to read a mathematical equation to appreciate poetry, he has them rip out those pages from the workbooks. But not everyone in the school is enamored with Mr. Keating's style of teaching. Here's a quote without context. Just when you think you know something, you have to look at it in another way. Dead Poet Society showcases the influence a passionate teacher can have over their students' lives. It's a worthwhile view, in these days, when teachers are being unfairly targeted by people who mistake indoctrination for tolerance and acceptance. Especially when their view of history is that slavery wasn't so bad and the Confederacy should be celebrated. But back to the movie. The best compliment I can give a director is that the camera movements were completely unintrusive. None of Peter Weir's choices took me out of the film. He also helped mold one of the best performances of Robin Williams' career. He will always be known as a comedic talent with a rapid-fire mind, but his dramatic roles have brought him the most critical praise. There were moments that he was able to tap into his comedy roots with impressions of John Wayne and Marlon Brando but for the most part, his acting was subtle and restrained. The story is pretty straightforward. I thought some of the subplots were a little unnecessary or underdeveloped. Knox Overstreet fell in love with a young woman after meeting her once, and the rest of those scenes fell flat. Charlie Dalton was a bit rebellious, but we only had a couple of glimpses of him going against the grain. I think if the storyline focused only on Mr. Keating, Neil Perry, and Todd Anderson, it would have felt more cohesive and tighter. It also would have cut about 15 minutes from the runtime. Now for a little trivial trivia. The film was shot in chronological order to show the developing relationships between the students and their acceptance and respect for John Keating. Dead Poet Society was produced by Touchstone Pictures and Silver Screen Partners. It was filmed at St. Andrew's School, Everett Theatre, and Wolf Cave in Delaware. The cinematography was captured by John Seale, whose filmography includes Witness, Rain Man, Cold Mountain, and Mad Max Fury Road. He won an Oscar for Best Cinematography of The English Patient. It was edited by William M. Anderson, who worked on Gallipoli, 1492 Conquest of Paradise, City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold, and Down Periscope. The score was composed by Maurice Jarre, who worked on the music for Gorillas in the Mist, Fatal Attraction, Ghost, and won three Oscars for Best Music Original Score of Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and A Passage to India. The soundtrack featured songs by Wanda Jackson, The Cadets, and classical pieces from Handel and Beethoven. The runtime is two hours, eight minutes. It had a budget of $16 million and grossed $235 million at the box office. It was nominated for four Oscars at the 1990 Academy Awards, winning one for Best Writing, Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen. On the Ski Index, I give it 4 out of 5 stars. Add half a star if your enjoyment of poetry goes beyond There Once Was a Man from Nantucket. If you've seen Dead Poets Society and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, Each episode, I'm gonna post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. I was a decent student in school, but the truth was, I always knew I wanted to do something creative, so math and science were never subjects I paid much attention to. I was alright in English and was bueno in Spanish. But I excelled in history. I've always found that when you're writing a story, even the most fantastical needs to be based in reality. And I like using historical events in my work to ground the tale. So I'm constantly watching videos on YouTube on people, places, and things in history. And I came across two regarding cities around the world. The first featured the largest abandoned cities. It's interesting hearing these stories on how these places came to be, and the circumstances which left them abandoned. Some could be completely functioning, but for one reason or another remain uninhabited. I think the one that looks most interesting is Ashgabat, Turkmenistan. I mean, it's a fully functioning, beautiful city, where you have to be a billionaire to live. Granted, there's no free press, and I'm sure there are a lot of shady business dealings there, but it's a pretty city. The second includes cities that are forbidden to visit. Many of these places were originally open to the public, but have since been closed, either for historical preservation or environmental conservation. From this batch, I'd probably want to visit Maya Bay, Thailand. If the scenery looks familiar, it's because that's where they shot the beach with Leonardo DiCaprio, but that's not why I want to go there. The sand, the water, the cliffs, it just looks like a magical place. So which ones would you be interested in visiting? Hit me up on social using the hashtag MattWatchThat. These videos are all available in the MattWatchThat playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Six Feet Under. It tells a story of the Fishers, whose lives are thrown into turmoil when patriarch, Nathaniel Fisher Sr., suddenly dies in a car accident on Christmas Eve. They're used to the stench of death, as running a funeral home is the family business. The oldest sibling, Nate, dropped out of college and flew the coop to Seattle, seeking direction in his life, and became the assistant manager of produce at a food market. He initially wants to sell the family business and fly back to the Emerald City, but is convinced to stick around. The middle child and second son David has been working at the funeral home since he was 20 and holds resentment toward Nate for leaving the family. He also struggles to come to terms with his sexuality and is emotionally closed off. Claire is the youngest child and only daughter who has a rough time fitting in in high school, especially when tales of her sexual exploits come to light. The siblings have a complicated relationship There are moments of sympathy and support, but they are mostly at each other's throats. The family is kept together by their mother, Ruth. While she's saddened by her husband's death, it's also a bit freeing from the strains of marriage and the responsibilities of a housewife. Six Feet Under was created by Alan Ball. He started as a writer on sitcom Grace Under Fire before becoming a producer on Sybil. He wrote the screenplay for American Beauty, which was nominated for eight Oscars at the 2000 Academy Awards, winning Best Writing, Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen. He would go on to create True Blood. It stars Peter Krause of Sports Night and Parenthood fame, Michael C. Hall, best known for his turn as Dexter in the Showtime series, Lauren Ambrose, who currently appears in Yellow Jackets, Francis Conroy of the anthology American Horror Story, and Richard Jenkins, an underrated character actor who had roles in The Witches of Eastwick, Step Brothers, Jack Reacher, and Let Me In. It also features Freddie Rodriguez, Matthew St. Patrick, Rachel Griffiths, Justine Machado, and Jeremy Sisto. Full disclosure I haven't seen the entire series. But my sister-in-law and many critics say it's one of the greatest finales in television history. I stopped somewhere in the third season because the character of Brenda annoyed the hell out of me. She has a lot of go-away energy. Out of all the relationships in the show, I could have done without that one. My least favorite. Now on to one of my favorite parts, the theme music by Thomas Newman who composed the score for Shawshank Redemption, Little Women, American Beauty, Road to Perdition, and Skyfall. He's been nominated for 15 Academy Awards. He has such a distinct style that's easily recognizable. In fact, the theme song sounds like it could have been part of the soundtrack for Finding Nemo. There's such a similar cadence in the construction of the music. But I like the series because it's a little offbeat. As you could expect, it is a dark comedy. All the characters at some point become irritating, but you want to continue to watch because all the actors are so great, and the ensemble really drives the show. Six Feet Under was on for five seasons, 63 episodes from 2001 to 2005. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky, You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed, or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSaroski.com for all the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the reviews, rants, and randomness. He wrote the screenplay for American Beauty, which was nominated for eight Oscars at the 20,000, 20,000, Academy Awards. Ecodrama, The Mosquito, The Mosquito Coast, really? That's how we're pronouncing it, Matt? This, <coughs> <coughs> well, wow, air just made me choke. Whose filmography includes Witness, Rain Man, Cold Mountain, and Max Fury, Max Fury.